Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Deep in the heart of East Texas lies a cursed ground, an oil field left abandoned decades ago that over the last 40 years has become an active open-air cemetery. It's a place where shadows grow long, where the wind howls through the trees, and where 30 dead bodies have been discovered and nobody has been held responsible for these crimes. There are no answers or justice in this case, only heartbreak, violence, and murder. This is the story of the Texas Killing Fields. Today's episode contains assault and violence against children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Murder in America. something straight out of a Hollywood horror movie. Located in League City, Texas, about 30 minutes south of Houston lies the Texas Killing Fields. The Killing Fields are commonly defined as an area bordering the Calder Oil Field, a 25-acre patch of land only one mile from Interstate Highway 45. There actually used to be a sign along the road that runs alongside the Killing Fields that read, you are now entering the cruel world. And a cruel world this place is indeed. 30 bodies have been discovered in this area in the last 40 years, and even though this case has received national attention and has been the focus of movies and literature, nobody has ever been held responsible for their role in any of these murders. Buckle up, because this story is a wild and dark ride. The very first victim discovered dead in the Texas killing fields was 13-year-old Colette Wilson. She was a beautiful young girl with black hair and piercing blue eyes. She was an enthusiastic musician and played an instrument in the band at her school. Colette had a very bright future ahead of her. However, there was no way for her to predict that the night of June 17, 1971 would be her last. On that fateful evening, Colette had just finished playing in a band concert and her instructor agreed to take a bunch of the kids home afterwards. In rural towns like this, when night hit, it would hit hard and the shadows cast by streetlights seemed to stretch for miles and miles. That night, Colette's band instructor dropped her off at the intersection of Highway 6 and County Road 95 in Alvin, Texas. At the time, the place where Colette was dropped off didn't have much traffic and the area was considered to be very safe. Now, Colette's mom's name was Claire and she was supposed to meet her at this intersection that night. But at the time, she was running a few minutes late. It always seems to be those lost seconds when tragedy strikes. 
Claire actually showed up only five minutes after Colette's instructor dropped her off and Colette was nowhere to be seen. Now Claire wasn't panicking at this point because she remembered having a conversation with Colette about how if she was ever late, she should just walk to a friend's house who lived nearby. So thinking logically, Claire just assumes that that's where her daughter is. And just before she leaves the intersection, she notices a car on the side of the road that looks like it maybe broke down, but she doesn't really think anything of it and she leaves to go to the friend's house. But when she arrives, she experiences every mother's worst nightmare. Colette isn't there. Panic is starting to set in at this point. She remembers that car on the side of the road and thinks that maybe they can provide some insight on what happened to Colette. But when she drives back to the intersection, this mysterious car is gone. A really sad fact about a lot of the victims that were found in the Texas killing fields is that when their families initially reported them missing, law enforcement just assumed that they were runaways and didn't take the missing persons reports seriously. This would change over time, but initially this lack of care by the police proved to be a grave mistake. If you're familiar with missing persons cases, you'll know that the first 48 hours after the person goes missing are the most important. Studies have even shown that if the missing person isn't found within that window, it's very likely that they are dead. So it's very upsetting that the police weren't interested in helping the Wilson family find Colette sooner. Colette's family knew that she would never run away, and they also knew that with each second that passed, they were losing precious time. So they gathered up their friends, family, and neighbors, and they started to search for her. And unfortunately, the family wasn't able to find any trace of Colette. About a month later, on July 12, 1971, a group of people were painting on the Pelican Island Bridge in Galveston, and as they were creating their art and enjoying the beautiful summer weather, they noticed something suspicious floating in the water below them. One can only imagine the horror that filled the hearts of these individuals as they got closer to this object bobbing in the sea and slowly began to realize that what they were looking at was the decaying body of a young girl. Surprisingly though, this is where the story starts to get crazy, for this was not the body of Colette Wilson. It ended up being the corpse of another young girl that had gone missing named Brenda Jones. Brenda was 14 years old at the time of her death and had attended a local Catholic school. She was known to be a very sweet and compassionate girl with a bright future ahead of her. On the last day of her life, Brenda had wanted to visit her aunt who was in the hospital, so she hopped on a bus and made the long journey all by herself to go see her. I think that that alone shows you the kind of person that Brenda was. After visiting her aunt in the hospital, Brenda took the bus back home and later on the bus driver would confirm that she indeed was dropped off safely at the bus stop. There were only a few blocks of city in between the bus stop and the apartment where Brenda lived and it was somewhere along that short walk when she was abducted. Just like with Colette's disappearance, local law enforcement agencies told Brenda's family initially that she had probably just run away and they didn't put too much effort into searching for her. At this point in time, Colette is still missing when law enforcement finds out that two other girls had recently disappeared in Galveston at the same time. Their names were Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson. The two girls were both 14 years old and they were best friends. It was also common knowledge that the two were known to be very free spirits. This was the hippie era and Renee and Sharon really identified with that movement. To them, it was more than just fashion. It was a cultural statement and a way of life. The night in August that Sharon and Renee went missing, the two were supposed to meet a friend to hang out, and they ended up both going missing along Galveston's Sea Wall, a stone wall bordering the ocean that the two were most likely traveling along. Sharon and Renee were known to hitchhike pretty frequently, a practice which was very, very common in the 70s. It was through hitchhiking that a lot of serial killers found their victims back then, because these women that they picked up were just willingly getting into their vehicles and typically knew nothing about the person who was driving. And I think 
think nowadays it's common knowledge that you're never supposed to hitchhike because of what we learned from these brutal hitchhiking murders in the 70s. It isn't confirmed that that's how Sharon and Renee were abducted, but it's likely that they had been walking, attempted to hitchhike, and sadly just chose the wrong person to put their trust into. Tragically, investigators ended up finding both of their bodies a few months later. But Renee and Sharon were not the last victims that would be found who had disappeared in a similar fashion. In fact, their disappearances were only the very beginning. The next victim found was Gloria Gonzalez, a young woman who was 19 years old at the time of her death. Gloria worked at a local grocery store and was a beloved member of her community. In October of 1971, the same year that Colette, Brenda, Sharon, and Renee had all gone missing, Gloria was abducted outside of her apartment. Her body was not found until a few months later, when her corpse was discovered floating lifeless in a dark reservoir. When investigators were setting up the crime scene and examining the body, they slowly began to realize that it wasn't just Gloria's body that they had found in the reservoir that day. To their horror, they had actually stumbled across two sets of decayed female remains. Investigators noticed that there were personal items found at the scene that seemed to identify the other body as belonging to a missing 13-year-old, Colette Wilson, who was the first girl to go missing in our story. Investigators ended up calling Colette's father to see if he could come and identify her through the teeth found at the crime scene. Oddly enough, in an eerie twist of fate, Colette's father was a dentist, and when he arrived at the scene, he actually held his own daughter's jaw in his hands and was able to positively identify the remains as his precious daughter, Colette. And I just can't even imagine what that would have been like for him. It's already so traumatic to have your 13-year-old daughter go missing, but then to have to hold her jaw in your hands to identify her is so heartbreaking. The tragic murders of these very young women were only the beginning of the terror that Houston and Galveston would face over the next few decades. The girls we just discussed were only the first five victims of the Galveston 11. And when we mention the Galveston 11, we're referring to a group of 11 young women who were found murdered and had their bodies dumped in the Galveston area in the 70s. And as much as I would love to tell the story of every victim in the Galveston 11, there are more victims that were found in the next decade that are very important to our story, so we have to move on and cover them. But before we move on, we do want to discuss some of the suspects that were identified in connection to the murders of the Galveston 11. The only man that's ever been convicted for the murders along I-45 is a guy named Michael Lloyd Self. He worked at a local gas station in the Galveston area. And in the wake of these crimes, police arrested him in connection to the murders of Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson, the two friends that were abducted along the Galveston seawall. And during all of our research, I was never even able to find out why police suspected him in the first place. In addition, Michael was convicted without a shred of physical evidence. The only thing police had on him was a confession, but his confession didn't match the evidence. And he said that the only reason he confessed was because the cops were literally beating him while he was in custody and playing Russian roulette with him. If you don't understand what Russian roulette is, basically you just take one bullet, you put it in a revolver, you spin the, the chamber, yeah, the chamber of the revolver, click it back into the gun and pull the trigger. It's basically a one in six chance that you die. So that's a very dangerous and frightening game. And I couldn't imagine being forced to play that with the cops. I'd definitely crumble. What's interesting is that nowadays it's common knowledge that Self was innocent. There are even investigators and district attorneys who have gone on the record and said that they think Michael was wrongly convicted and was ultimately innocent. But back in the 70s, police departments didn't fully understand the concept of false confessions. So after he was convicted, Michael remained in prison until the day he died for murders he likely did not commit. 
Another suspect in the Galveston 11 was a man named Edward Howard Bell. Edward was a serial sex offender, and one day he was exposing himself to a group of teenage girls in public. And a man named Larry, who was in the area, witnessed him do this, and he called the police. Edward didn't want to go to jail, so he literally pulled out a gun and repeatedly shot Larry until he was dead. After killing Larry, Edward quickly fled the United States and headed to Panama to let the heat of the murder die down. But he was eventually identified while hiding and extradited back to the U.S. in 1994. While he was in prison, he told authorities that he was responsible for the murders of the Galveston 11. He even referred to them chillingly as the 11 that went to heaven. And the interesting thing about his confessions was that the details of the murders were extremely accurate to those of the crime scenes. He was able to tell investigators the kind of gun he used, the angle at which he shot some of the girls. He even drove a similar car that some of the victims were seen getting into on the last night of their life. He died in prison in 2019, but he was never convicted for the murders of the Galveston 11. The only murder he ended up serving time for was of the man named Larry who he shot before heading to Panama. And I think that investigators didn't want to make the same mistakes that they made in the case of Michael Self, so they wanted more evidence of his involvement before bringing him to trial. In addition, Edward was already in prison for life for killing Larry, so maybe they didn't find it necessary to prove his involvement since he was already in prison. At the end of the day, there apparently just wasn't enough physical evidence to link Edward to the crimes, so they remain somewhat unsolved. I definitely think that Ed Bell was responsible for at least some of the Galveston 11 murders. The Galveston 11 victims are among over 30 other young girls that have been found murdered and dumped throughout the Houston-Galveston area over the years. Now this is where the story gets really juicy. Courtney, let's now get into the stories of four more victims and the crazy things that we experienced when we went out to the location where their bodies were dumped. These four victims that we're about to talk about were found in League City, Texas. And I want to start off by saying that I spent my entire childhood in Lake City and I'd never heard of these murders until Colin brought their story up to me. The location where these victims were found is 10 minutes away from the houses that I grew up in and I just never knew. And Colin and I actually visited this body dumping location back in November, which is located on an oil field just a little ways from the I-45 freeway in the heart of the killing fields. This location is remote even to this day, so I can definitely see how years ago when the area was even less developed that it would have been a perfect place to dump a body. It's very desolate, secluded, and a good distance away from any major roads. From 1984 to 1991, there were four female bodies found on this small patch of land. If you go there today, there are little memorials set up where each of the bodies were discovered. It's super eerie to go out there because nowadays the trees are all cleared out and I'm sure when the perpetrator dumped the bodies, it looked like more of a forest. But now if you head out to this area, you can see all four memorials, each one marking where a body was found. And it's shocking to sit there in person and realize that they were all found extremely close to one another. When investigators found all the victims, they were lying naked on their backs with their arms crossed over their chests. And to me, that's obviously a large indication that they were all killed by the same person. The first victim was found on April 6, 1984. A local family had been enjoying a spring day in Texas, just relaxing and taking in the nice weather, when they noticed that their dog had left the area they were in and was off exploring in the woods. Obviously, dogs do this all the time, so they didn't assume that there was anything wrong. They waited a while for their beloved pet to return, and when it finally did, it brought back a grim souvenir from its adventure. A human skull. This skull was later identified as belonging to a 25-year-old cocktail waitress, a woman by the name of Heidi Fye. 
Heidi was last seen while walking to a convenience store to use a payphone, and just like in other cases in the story, it was during this short walk that she vanished into thin air. The publication Texas Monthly said in their write-up of the killing fields that Heidi's father was very distraught about her disappearance, and before he died of cancer, he made his entire family promise that they would never stop looking for her killer. Unfortunately, he died before the murderer was brought to justice. And hearing that just breaks your heart. I can't even imagine dying and never getting those answers. Two years later, on February 2nd, 1986, a group of local boys were riding dirt bikes in the same area and smelled something that they could only describe as decomposition. As they followed the scent, it only seemed to grow more foul, and the group began to worry about what they were about to find. Unbeknownst to these boys, they were about to stumble upon an active crime scene, and following this smell led the group to discover another set of human remains. Interestingly to police, these remains were found just yards away from where Heidi's body was dumped two years earlier. When the police arrived and began setting up their crime scene, they noticed that there wasn't just one body in the area. A few steps away from Heidi, investigators discovered another decomposing female body. This victim was identified as 16-year-old girl Laura Miller, a sophomore at Clear Creek High School, a school somewhat close to the location of where the remains were found. Laura's family described her as a great girl who loved music and deeply enjoyed life. It's the small details like this that make these murders more heartbreaking. On the night of her disappearance, Laura asked her mother to drive her to a payphone so she could call her boyfriend and told her that she planned on walking back home afterwards. But as we've heard many times before in this story, on that tragic night, Laura never made it back home. And once again, it seemed like she had just vanished into thin air. Police never made this connection at the time, but Laura was actually last seen at the exact same convenience store that Heidi was last seen at, the woman who had also traveled there to use the payphone. Laura's father, Tim, was extremely affected by his daughter's murder, and he turned this worry and anxiety into a passion for solving missing persons cases. Tim would go on to run the Texas EquiSearch, an organization which locates missing people and solves crimes. This small detail proved to be one of the only good things to come out of this tragic tale. Unfortunately, the set of remains that were found just 20 yards from Laura's were not able to be identified. The only information that the medical examiner was able to give was that she was between 22 and 30 years old and that she was shot with what seemed to be a 22 caliber handgun. She remained a Jane Doe for nearly 35 years until just this past year when she was identified through DNA testing as a woman named Audrey Cook. Audrey was 30 years old at the time of her disappearance and her family said that she went missing in December of 1985. And this story is really sad to me because we don't really have a lot of information on Audrey. I wish I could tell you more about her story or the kind of person she was, but investigators are still asking the public for information because her family wasn't able to give much. Five years later, the fourth set of female remains were found in this area. And again, they were not able to identify them until recently, when through DNA testing, investigators discovered that her name was Donna Prudholm, a missing woman who had last been seen in July of 1991. Donna's sister came forward after she was identified and said that Donna had lived a really hard life, living as a mother of two who got caught up in an extremely abusive relationship. 
Donna had wanted to give her kids a good life, so at one point she ended the abusive relationship and sent her kids to live with their grandma while she worked on getting her own life together. But sadly, it was shortly after her kids left that Donna went missing, and she was never heard from again. Now, even though bodies had been showing up around the Houston and Galveston area for over a decade, the discovery of these four girls' bodies is what really brought national attention to the killing fields. This is because with the previous victims, like the Galveston 11, all of the bodies were found in different areas with different jurisdictions, so it wasn't as easy to link the cases together. But I think since these four women were found posed in similar ways and in such close proximity to each other, the media really publicized their stories. And this is when the term Texas Killing Fields really took hold and captivated the public. And now the Texas Killing Fields have been home to over 30 victims. It's highly unlikely that all 30 women were killed by the same person, but that makes it 10 times scarier that there isn't just one serial killer roaming around the Houston area, but multiple who have never been caught. And now let's talk about the suspects in the murders of these four women that we just talked about. One man who was suspected of carrying out these killings was a guy by the name of Mark Stalling. Mark was serving a life sentence for kidnapping when he confessed to killing Donna Prudham, the last victim found in League City. Before being sent to prison, he had lived near some of the missing women, but since all police had on Mark was a confession, there wasn't enough evidence for a conviction. While Mark may have claimed the murder of Donna Prudham as his own without any evidence, this next suspect never stated any involvement in the crimes, but his actions seemed to be enough evidence that it piqued investigators' interests. This second suspect's name was Robert Abel. Robert was a retired NASA engineer, an extremely smart guy who owned land on parts of the oil field where the girls' bodies were found. After the fourth victim, Donna, was discovered, Robert went out of his way to involve himself in the investigation, so much so that he would try to tell law enforcement how they should investigate. He was helping them clear brush around the area, and he even let them use some of his horses during the investigation. Which, I know there are going to be people that say, well, maybe he was just a concerned citizen who really wanted to help solve the murders, which is an argument that I completely understand. But it's important to consider that it's extremely common for offenders to involve themselves in investigations of crimes that they have committed. It's almost like they get a front row seat to watch all that they've done and all of the ramifications play out right in front of them. So obviously straight away, Robert deeply involving himself in the crime scenes and investigations was very suspicious to investigators. Eventually, after the initial searches of the area, police decided that Robert may actually be a person of interest, and one of the detectives on the case, Detective Bittner, decided to bring him in for a formal interview. In a suspicious turn of events, when Detective Bittner asked Robert if he had ever had any bodies turn up on his property, Robert got extremely defensive and angry, and he stopped the interview. He proceeded to literally get up and leave the police station. Bittner and other investigators found this over reaction to be extremely suspicious, rightfully so. Detectives on the case also believe that based on the FBI profiling, the perpetrator was considered to be an organized killer. And an organized killer is usually someone very intelligent, someone who is known to fit in with their peers without raising any suspicion. Investigators believe that Robert fit this profile almost to a T. He was a NASA engineer, so he was clearly very smart, and most people that knew him described him to be a great guy. And he even opened up and ran a very popular riding trail where people would come to ride horses, so he was obviously able to blend into society well. His riding trail was also extremely close to the area where the four bodies were found. A couple years went by and law enforcement officials hadn't really made much progress in the case when out of the blue, Detective Bittner got a call from Robert's wife, Paula. Paula told Bittner that she and Robert were separating and she finally felt like she could come clean about the real Robert Abel. 
I think that Paula had an inkling that Robert was involved because what she told investigators was absolutely chilling. Paula began to tell detectives that although Robert seemed put together on the outside, he often had these fits of rage where he would just get so angry that he would beat their livestock, and sometimes Robert would just disappear for days at a time and not tell Paula where he had been. She also said that there were several times when she found nude photos of women in his belongings. Even if Robert wasn't a killer, this behavior is obviously super suspicious. Before the interview was over, Paula also told detectives that you're going to want to talk to Robert's previous wife, Cindy. When detectives called Cindy, they discovered that she and Robert were only married for 41 days. Apparently, on their honeymoon, Cindy didn't want to have sex with Robert one night, and he got so upset that he told her, if you ever deny me sex again, I will kill you. Cindy also confirmed that Robert would beat animals when he got angry, and that she would constantly find nude photos of women in his possession. This behavior seemed to follow Robert through every relationship he was involved in, but this information alone was obviously not enough to arrest him. So Bittner turned to the FBI for help and contacted a man who specialized in sexual homicides named David Gomez. Bittner gave Gomez all of the details of the case and Gomez created a profile of the killer. Gomez concluded that the killer would most likely involve himself in the investigation somehow, which Robert did. He also said that the killer would have a comfort zone or area that he would kill in, and it would be very unlikely that he would deviate from this zone. He said that the murderer probably had a superior attitude and a history of cruelty to animals, and that he will likely act out his anger. He concluded that the killer most likely collected trophies from his victims. Bittner was blown away as he heard this profile because Robert checked almost all of the boxes. And I didn't know that law enforcement officials were allowed to do this, but apparently if someone matches a perpetrator's profile well enough, they're allowed to get a search warrant for their property. So, in November of 1993, agents showed up to Robert's house with a warrant and started their search. They found the nude photos of women that both Paula and Cindy had referenced, three 22 caliber handguns, a tooth on his counter, and they vacuumed his floors in an attempt to locate hair strands from victims. The agents even took parts of Robert's curtains to see if they possibly matched the strangulation marks left on the victim's necks. And after all of this hard work, they came up with nothing. The gun wasn't able to be matched to the guns used at the crime scene because they were too deteriorated. The tooth found on his counter ended up being his own tooth, and a woman came forward identifying herself in the nude photos. So after all of this confidence and effort to discover evidence of Robert's involvement, officials had absolutely nothing that tied him to the crimes. However, one thing that was interesting to investigators that they found were newspaper clippings of the Texas Killing Field serial killer, which is suspicious because a lot of killers will do that so that they can go back and read about what they've done. It's almost like a power trip to them, or some sort of grim trophy. In another sort of grim twist of fate, Robert actually ended up committing suicide years later by driving his car and parking it on train tracks and waiting for a train to collide with his vehicle. Whatever answers he had in this case, it seems Robert took to his grave. And unfortunately, this is where our story ends. Investigators were never able to find any evidence linking Robert to these crimes. And that could be because he's an organized killer. He's a smart man. Maybe he was able to clean up after himself without leaving a trace. Or maybe he's innocent. And I know that a lot of our listeners are paranormal fans, and we're going to have some listeners who maybe aren't. But something interesting came up when we went to the Texas Killing Fields. Colin, can you explain your device to everyone? So if you're a fan of the Paranormal Files, you already know what this device is. 
But for those of you who don't watch ghost hunting shows, this thing is called an ovulus. Basically, the ovulus is a device. It has a baseline reading of EMF electromagnetic frequency in the environment. And this is what spirits are said to give off or use to manifest. So it has a baseline. And when the EMF levels rise or go below the baseline, it takes that deviation and puts it into an algorithm and gives you a word based on that value. You can have, I mean, there are hundreds, thousands of words in this database. You can have tree, car, you know, different names like Travis or even places like swimming pool, stuff like that. But when we went to the killing fields that night, we captured something insane on the ovulus. To put you into the scene, it was dark, it was cold, it was very foggy, it was a very, very eerie evening out there. We parked in the Baptist church that's next to the killing fields, walked over, saw the memorials of the four bodies that were found in the area. We used the spirit box and tried to connect with the energy. We didn't really get anything conclusive on the spirit box, so we decided to walk back to the car and grab the ovulus and kind of walk into the woods at the very edge of the killing fields. This, I mean, you got to imagine, guys, this was a very, very spooky evening, very dark, very damp. The woods are just, they exude this kind of, I don't know, almost evil vibe. And when we were walking into the forest, we turn on the ovulus. What was the word that pops up? The name? Robert. Literally. I mean, we had just gotten there and it said Robert. I can't remember a time when the ovulus has given me the name Robert. And I mean, what are the odds of out of every single word in that database? The word bank in the ovulus, it gives the word Robert. Now, we're not saying here that that's 100% paranormal truth and evidence, and it's obviously not enough evidence to submit to the police and claim guilt on Robert. But it is interesting to consider. Was this the spirits of those who died and whose bodies were found right there coming from the grave and giving us some sort of an answer to these unanswered questions in this case? I don't know. Honestly, to see that name pop up on the device was not only shocking, but it was incredibly interesting to know that the main suspect's name was sitting right there on the device. And I mean, the thing has hundreds of words that can be generated. And for it to say Robert when we were standing right around where the bodies were found is just so chilling. I remember standing out there and just literally feeling a chill down my spine. And that's kind of where we have to leave this, because with the killing fields, we just don't know. There are no answers. This is a stretch of land where all of these bodies have been found. Many murders have been carried out, but no justice has been done. It's interesting to me when you find a place like this that seems to be a magnet for death, for murder. Like Leakin Park in Baltimore, there are these places in the world where murderers, bad people, they all come, they congregate to do bad things. The killing fields are definitely not a place you want to be alone at night, not only because of the remoteness of the location, but because of the history, the energy, because of what happened. And we can never forget what happened, especially in this case, because at this point, there's a lot to remember, but there are no answers. So if you ever find yourself in the Texas killing fields late at night, be sure to watch your back. Be sure to keep your eyes wide open, for these shadows can hide secrets, and they do. And at the end of the day, you do not want to end up as victim number 31. 
And that is all for our story today. Thank you guys for listening to episode two of Murder in America. Next week, Colin, where are we going? We are going to South Dakota, baby. We're going to tell the darkest stories in the history of my home state. I'm a native South Dakotan, a transplant in Texas. And I'm telling you guys, these stories that we discovered looking into the history of murder in South Dakota are so shocking that I think they kind of outdo these Texas tales that we've been talking about. Texas may be cool. South Dakota's where it's at. No, 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 no. Well, everybody, I want to remind you guys one more time. We are going to be posting that clip of us capturing Robert on the Ovulus on our Patreon tomorrow. So if you want to see that happen, you want to see some footage from the area where these girls were found, their bodies, please sign up to be a patron. It's not that much money. It really isn't. But it helps us so much because we want to make this a full-time thing where we can bring you guys the darkest stories in America. And once again, all I got to say to everybody that's listening, thank you for listening. And thank you for supporting the work that we do. It means the world to us. Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and supporting us. And I'll leave you with this. The catchphrase. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Case of our podcast talks about this concept. Was a spirit telling us Robert's name that night on the killing fields? Were they trying to tell us who killed them? It makes you wonder. The dead don't talk. Or do they? Good night, everyone, and thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.